Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. As you're turning there, let me open our time together in prayer this morning. Father God, we come before you with a humble faith, Father. We come bringing nothing in our hands but but simply to the cross that we cling this morning. And we pray, Lord, as we open the scriptures and as we look at your word, that you would give us understanding, that the Spirit would open our eyes and give us new life, make things come alive, Father. Your word is already uh, sharper than two-edged swords, so we pray, Lord, that you would use it to cut us, to grow us. And, Father, Lord, we know that you can do this because you've encouraged us into it. And so, Lord, we, we come to you in faith this morning, asking that you give us understanding, give us knowledge, show us Jesus. It's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, if you're there, say amen. You need some time, say so hold up. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, look with me in the beginning of verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is the Lord's word to us. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that, I, say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is God's word. In this section of scripture, Jesus has gathered his disciples and is asking them, who, who do people say that I am? And his disciples list off, list off some possible ideas of who the crowd thinks that Jesus might be. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets of Old Testament, uh, who always came speaking on behalf of God. And Jesus then makes the question more narrow, more personal, when he says, who do you say that I am? To which Peter, who is sort of the ringleader of the group, the one who always speaks first and then thinks about it, uh, and he says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to which then Jesus declares that Peter is blessed because this has been revealed by, to Peter by God the Father. Jesus then goes on in verse 18, that is on this rock, that he will build his, build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail Against it. Now, generally, when we approach these verses, if you've been in church with any, for any length of time, we're often drawn to the imagery of the latter half of that verse, which conjures up in our minds the battles between good and evil, between heaven and hell, and between us versus them. Or we're drawn to the question of how the church is actually pushing back all forms of evil with Christians living courageous lives and dangerous lives for the glory of God and his kingdom. And all of this is very good. It's worth exploring, it's worth meditating on, being encouraged by. But I want to do over the next two weeks is to begin to try and understand what it means in the first half of that verse where Jesus says, I will build my church. Particularly, what was Jesus aiming to establish? What was the thing which Jesus said he would build and how is it different than other things? This morning I want to dive into a two-part sermon series where we dive into the scriptures to understand what are the signs of the new community. What are the signs of the new community? To begin, let us understand that Jesus was in fact building a new community. Let us define what this means. Many people over the years have told me, Pastor, I don't like organized religion. Or, I don't think Jesus would care much for the organized church. The danger in this kind of thought, though, 
or use of this language is that oftentimes people use words with different sets of definitions. What do people mean when they say, I don't like organized religion? We must ask ourselves the question, was Jesus building an organized religion? Was Jesus coming to build an organized church? Because organized religion is actually a very good thing. You see, rightly understood and rightly practiced. For example, the scriptures say that pure religion is taking care of orphans and widows and not sinning. So then organized religion is rightly, rightly understood as having a system in place, being able to care for said orphans, care for said widows, or to keep us from sinning. So is Jesus coming to build an organized religion? The answer is, of course he was. Of course he was. What about organized church? Well, we just read in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus most definitely came to build a church. So the question is, will we have a disorganized church that is full of chaos and not order, or will we have an organized church? Paul seems to think this is the, lad, the latter is the case here when he tells Titus in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 that he left him in Crete so that Titus would put everything in order that remained. And so he could appoint elders in each town. That is what, what Paul is saying, that there's to be a hierarchical structure in church leadership and the people were not to be left doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. In other, in other words, this is an organized church. So was Jesus coming to build an organized, organized religion or an organized church? And the answer from the Bible is, of course he was. But remember, the danger is that most often people are using different sets of definitions. You see, when someone says, I don't like organized religion, what they generally mean by organized religions, that they don't think they actually have to be a part of a new community. Or that at least the Bible doesn't describe what the new community is or looks like, or, and so they, therefore they get to define what it is themselves. So for some, this turns out to look like sitting in nature, surrounded by the glory of God's creation on a Sunday morning, as opposed to being with believers gathered together for worship. Or it could be defining holiness and prayer and worship in our own terms and limited to our merely natural families. This is the birth of the, a lot of the home church movement aspect. In all of it, it's a, it's a minimizing of the clear commands of Scripture on what the new community actually is and for. So what is the new community? What is the new community, this church that Jesus says he will build? Well, firstly, it's, it's, a, it's a gathering of people who follow Jesus. At its most basic, it's a gathering of people who follow Jesus. The new community is a people who have been rescued by the grace of God and led to trust in Christ that leads to loving him and obeying him. Because church is a community of people who rejoice in the gospel and strive to live out its implications for their lives, it makes sense that the new community is limited to those who believe the gospel and look to Jesus as their only hope. So the new community is not everyone in the world. Did you catch that? It's massively important for us in helping navigate a lot of the political issues of our day. Not everyone is a follower of Jesus. Even those who claim to be followers of Jesus might indeed not be. This means that there are clear definitions and delineations of who is part of the community and who is not part of the community. Look back at chapter 16, verse 17. Look at this. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What is it that Jesus says has been revealed to Peter? What is the thing on which Jesus is going to build his church? The answer can be found in verse 16 in Peter's declaration that you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. This is the key verse of the entire passage. It's the thing that pivots away from the claims of Jesus being John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets to the promise that Jesus would build his church. It's the connecting point, if you will. So what is so magnificent? What is so important about what Peter has said? Well, in part, Peter has realized that Jesus is the one by whom God will redeem. Jesus is the one by whom God will redeem the world. This is what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the the anointed one, the Messiah. Peter saw and declared that Jesus was the Redeemer. Now, Mark chapter 8 gives us a little bit more detail into this. Um, right, and the, 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 Mark, the account of Mark gives us a, another take of this exact same encounter. Um, but right before uh, this story in the Gospel of Mark is another story of Jesus healing a blind man. Uh, we just read this in family worship the other night. Uh, and it's a story of Jesus healing a blind man, but he heals him in two parts. This is important, because can Jesus heal someone with one act? And he says, yes, of course he could. He's, he does it multiple other times. As a matter of fact, this is the only time in the scriptures where Jesus heals a blind man through two movements. And so the question is, well, well why is that? So you remember the story, right? Mark uh, chapter 8, Jesus heals a blind man by uh, touching his eyes. And he says, open your eyes and tell me, can you see? And the man opens his eyes and he says, I see men walking around, but they're, they look like walking trees. In other sense, he's, he's seeing a, a blurred vision, if you will. So then Jesus spits in his eyes and touches him again and says, now try. And the man can see clearly. He said, well, what's the point of the story? Well, the point of the story in Mark's gospel is to show that the disciples have only partly seen. They've seen Jesus uh, through, through, uh, through, through uh, blurred vision. They, they understand that he's the Christ, but they don't understand exactly what it means for him to suffer and die. But it would come where they would one day receive full vision at the, uh, when, when Christ would die and rise again from the dead and come again at Pentecost. This is, what she, this is what Peter is saying. He's declaring that Jesus was the Redeemer. He saw him as the one promised in the book of Genesis who would crush the head of the serpent. He saw him as the one who would be a, a, a prophet like Moses, who would lead his people not out of physical slavery, but out of the spiritual slavery of death. He saw him as the better and truer David, the one who was fully a man after God's own heart, a better and truer shepherd. You see, the new community that Christ is building is built on, centered upon, fixated to the person and work of Christ Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was meeting with some teenagers and uh, a man who was discipling them. Uh, He asked me to come and and share a few words. And so there I sat over coffee. I opened the scriptures and I pointed out to them merely that the entire Bible has as its theme, as its main theme, the thread of the scriptures, is the redeeming work of Christ Jesus. They then later went to a Bible study that evening and uh, with their minds kind of blown, uh, and they begin to tell the Bible study, turns out that all the scriptures are about Jesus, they said. To which everyone else in the Bible studies, now you get it. Now you see clearly all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through the former prophets, the minor prophets, all of the wisdom literature of the Psalms and Proverbs and the book of Job, all of it points to Christ Jesus and what he would do. The new community that Jesus is building has nothing else on which we stand. We do not stand together on racial lines or on ethnic lines. We stand together on the good news that God is saving sinners. Now, this doesn't mean we have nothing to say about anything else. For example, politics or laws 
or how we should push back the darkness of our world today. On the contrary, it means that we have, uh, that if we truly understand the good news of the gospel, then we realize that the gospel speaks to every issue of life. Far too often, the new community that Christ has been building for centuries has fallen silent on political issues because they think that they have to talk about it only in spiritual realities and not in the real life of physical realities around us. Take, for example, the issue of pornography. Ask yourself, should pornography be banned as law of the land? Furthermore, does the church have any right to speak up and to declare this to be so? To rally behind such a call, such a, such a call and such a law to be passed? Many would say the church has no right to speak up about such matters, for it's not spiritual. It's not the good news, pastor. Just preach the gospel. However, the new community, the people of God, must push for such a law because in doing so, they are truly loving their neighbors. But, 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 pastor, banning pornography doesn't change people's hearts, some might say, to which I would agree. But that doesn't change the reality that pornography is wrong and sinful and that we should work hard with everything in us on trying to make access to this particular sin nearly impossible. It's estimated that nearly 70% to 85% of men are consumers of pornography. That would be a large number of men in this very room. 40% to 45% or 55% of women is estimated watch pornography. And science has definitely shown that the long-time consumption, the more you partake in such a thing, changes physically the, the, the way that our brains view men and women. We no longer, after long-time consumption, view them as people made in God's image, but as sexual objects meant to be consumed. What's more, studies have shown that the more one consumes such content, the weirder the content needs to become. In order to supply the same level of dopamine satisfaction, there's a direct link between the growth of pornography use in our day and the rise of those who identify as LGBTQ+. Remember Christ's words in Matthew 18, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So understand, my point in all of this illustration is, is that the new community is centered upon the good news of Jesus, the news that Christ saves sinners, that he washes them clean with his own sacrificial death and gives them right standing before God. And it is because of this new creation work that Jesus is doing that we take then into account as we view the world around us. Christ rules over every part of life. And so the new community group is a group of people who follow Christ. The new community is also a group of people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Flip over to Romans chapter 8. If you're in Matthew chapter 16, it's just a, uh, a few pages to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 was read this morning in part. I want to read it again, but I want you to see it and go along with it. In Romans chapter 8, is one of the best chapters in all of Scripture. If you're to commit memory of Scripture, I, I encourage and admonish you to remember this chapter. Because it reveals that we are not following Jesus by our own strength or by our own might, but that we are following Christ because we have been raised from the dead as men and as women by the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 1. Let's read this again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according 
to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, Christians, this applies to you, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. In this passage, Paul's giving two options, two ways to view the world, two ways in which to walk and live in the world. And the first is by the flesh, and the other is by the Spirit. Notice there's no middle ground for Paul here. You're either one or the other. The flesh produces death, the Spirit produces life. The flesh produces sin, the Spirit produces righteousness. The flesh cannot please God, but the Spirit is loved by God. The flesh is hostile to God, but the Spirit submits to God. The flesh produces war, but the Spirit produces peace. And he ends it with declaring to those who are following Christ that as Christ was raised from the dead, so are all who believe in him. He goes on in, 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 verse, 14, in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, what, what Paul is saying here is that the new community, the church that Jesus is building, are, are, are those who follow Christ, not because of their own work, not because of their own efforts, but because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Think of the implications of this. It means that when you are faced with an issue of giving in to your sin, Say, when you want to blow up on your wife or children and can't control your anger, you have within you at that very moment, if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God living within you. Think of how different this was from Old Testament times. You see, in Old Testament times, to get nearer to God, you had to go where? To the temple. You had to travel long distances. You didn't have the Spirit of God living within you. You had to go and make sacrifice that your sin may be appeased, hopefully, maybe. But so is not true with the new believer. The new covenant gives the spirit of God inside of us. Or when you're tempted to fear man, when you should speak out against unrighteousness, the Holy Spirit is inside of you at that very moment, giving you the words of grace and words of truth to speak. Friends, being part of the new community means that you have the spirit of God within you. And this is a glorious thing. You see, Jesus came to build a new community, a different type of people, uh, a people who would follow him, having been redeemed, regenerated, and made new, and then being indwelt, or and at the same time being indwelt by God himself. So the work of being made right before God Almighty and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is instantaneous and invisible. It's instantaneous and invisible. You see, it's instantaneous. This means that the moment you declare that Christ is Lord, at that very moment that you place your faith in him, at that very moment you're given a new heart. You see, there isn't a waiting list or a, a make, go home and clean yourself up first and then come back list. All the righteousness which Christ secured at the cross when he died for your sins are immediately applied to you. 
All the blessings of the new covenant, all the promises that are yes and amen in Christ are instantly accessible to you. And it's also invisible. It's not only instantaneous, it's, it's invisible. This means that we can't see the ledger book, that all of your sin has been forgiven. But as sure as the sun will rise in the sky, your sin has surely been completely and utterly forgiven. But it's invisible. How do others know that you have been saved? How do they know you have been forgiven? Moreover, how do you know that you've been saved? How do you know that you have the Spirit living within you? How can you be assured that your sins are forgiven? Did you know that there are entire denominations that think you can't be assured of your salvation? They think that you can be saved and forgiven yesterday, but tomorrow lose it all. Forfeit the forgiveness and salvation. I've talked to many believers over the years and I've been a, uh, that I've been a pastor, and one of the questions I often ask is, uh, when, when those who say they follow Christ is, how do you know you are saved? How do you know you are forgiven? And how do you know that you will go to heaven when you die? To which you would be surprised the number of people who begin with, well, pastor, I, you know, I, I think I'm saved. You know, I, I try to be a good person. I try to go to the church, give money to the church. Friends, remember, it's not whether or not you're a good person that determines your salvation. So many people struggle under the weight of doubt and shame of their sin. And the answer is not try harder. The answer is to run to Christ, fall on his grace, trust in his faithfulness, not your own. We know we are saved because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. However, there are markers which the Lord gives to his people to further confirm the invisible work that Christ has done in their hearts. You see, every community, every society is marked by certain distinctions which set them apart from other groups. And the new community that Christ is building is no different. For example, citizens in England are taught to speak English since it's the national language where they live. Now, speaking English does not by itself make you an English citizen. We speak it too, but it's a common mark of all those who live there. In England, they speak English. The same is true of the church, which is a gospel community, or to put it differently, a community of those who believe the gospel. There are many things that should set the church apart from other institutions in the world. But Jesus gives two special acts to serve as marks for communities of his followers. And the first is baptism. That's where we'll spend our time. And then next week, we'll look at the second mark, which is the Lord's Supper. The first is baptism. For those who don't know, baptism is the process of the church taking followers of Jesus and immersing them into water for a few seconds, or as I told the men, a few minutes, and then lifting them out of it. It's a process by which the church affirms one's faith in Christ and admits them into the new community. Three points, and then we'll close our time together by doing two baptisms this morning. Point number one, baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Number two, baptism contains the story of redemption. And number three, baptism is the affirmation of faith into the new community. So number one, outward sign of an inward reality. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. In other words, we can't see what's happened on the inside of contours of your heart. But we can see how you walk it out. And for a follower of Christ, he, he demands, he commands that they be baptized. In Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember, salvation and forgiveness is invisible. Can't be earned. Can't be accomplished in and of yourself. And so the reason Jesus commands his followers to be baptized is so that they can publicly identify with his saving 
work. Now, a few years ago, I preached on baptism. I used the example uh, of the wedding ring, right? And I, this is what I used to teach my kids what baptism is. I can take off my wedding ring to not, right now, and I'm still married. It doesn't, doesn't change anything. It's the sign and symbol to the rest of the watching world that I am married. And then afterward, and I said, you know, I said a couple of years ago when I was preaching something similar, I said, and, 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 and it's, it should be thought of only shady men don't wear their wedding rings. To which afterwards, a few handful of folks in the church came up and said, Pastor, I don't wear my wedding ring. I said, well, what's that say about you, brother? <laughs> no, I, I get it. Uh, but in, anyways, in any, any case, uh, most of us understand that um, being baptized doesn't save you. Like we're, this is a Baptist church, uh, we preach and teach this. Uh, just because someone is baptized doesn't automatically make them a Christian any more than speaking English makes you an English citizen. But it is commanded, it is commanded by Christ that his followers be baptized. Most of us understand that, that, that being baptized doesn't make you a Christian because we've seen countless people baptized and maybe their young adult years only later, later to become apostate and leave the faith and walk away from church Altogether. And we conclude, therefore, that because they left us, they were never a part of us. Therefore, they were never Christians to begin with. Therefore, their baptism was of no value. As I like to tell people, if you've uh, been baptized without being saved, all you've merely done is get wet. My brother, he won't, he won't mind me sharing this story. He's been baptized like eight times. I'm like, bro, like, which, one, which, one, which one worked? He's like, uh, you know. Uh, that's because, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a heat of uh, emotion and passion, he said, yeah, yeah, I believe Jesus is getting saved me. And so some pastor came along and dunked him in the water. Well, and then he, he, a few years later, he's like, I don't think it was real. Gets saved again, gets baptized again. Then he goes to Israel and he's like, well, I got to get baptized in the Jordan where Jesus baptized, baptized him then. Only then later to come, that, like all those times, he had never actually truly understood what the gospel was and trusted in Christ. And then he did. And so he goes to his pastor, and he, he, you remember him calling me up and says, should I get baptized again? It's been like 29 times. I said, well, every other time wasn't true baptism. You just merely got wet, brother. Yes, get into the waters. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Baptism doesn't make you something you already aren't. You are a Christian before you are baptized, not afterwards. But you get baptized because you are a Christian. In this way, baptism publicly marks you as a follower of Christ, Baptism is meant for those who are believers, those who profess faith that Christ is Lord. This is important in understanding that when, we, when should we baptize our children? Uh, every example in the New Testament is adult believers being baptized. Now, I realize, I don't know if most of you realize this, but as Baptists, we are in the minority of uh, church history on this. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if that causes uneasiness. But if you study church history, understand that, that baptizing the children was, and, and babies was something that they've done for a long time. It's, it's Baptists that are on the minority understanding of how we understand. But nevertheless, it's how we read the scriptures. Because a, a child and a baby cannot profess faith in Christ and therefore are not admitted to the Baptists. But when you think about your own children as raising them up in the fear of admonition of the Lord, you may be thinking, well, when should we baptize our children? Like all believers, children who wish to be baptized will need to demonstrate an understanding of the gospel, at least in its basic elements, and of baptism's symbolic connection to Jesus' work on their behalf before receiving baptism as an affirmation of their faith. So number one, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. Number two, baptism contains a story of redemption. Think about it. Jesus did not pick this symbol for no reason. 
He did not randomly look out at all the religious things that people did, all the different tasks that they did, all the different things, the ceremonies and everything, and say, I'm just going to randomly pick that one where like, they, they just dunk it in the water and make that be the symbol of, of public faith. Think about it. Why is it not good enough that we just tell other people that we've been forgiven and saved by Jesus? Right? If, if, if baptism is the outward sign of an inward reality, can't my words be enough, Jesus? Can I just post it on my social media pages, Christ is Lord, and that be enough, Jesus? If you're in an old school revivalistic church, isn't it enough just to go down to the front of, the, of all the people gathered, kneeling in prayer as a public sign that you've been forgiven by God? Why, why confuse the matter of public demonstration with, with water? Moreover, why do you need to be fully submerged? Couldn't a few drops do instead of a couple hundred gallons? But think about it. Jesus chose baptism on purpose. The reason why baptism by immersion is the sign of our new life in Christ is because in the very act of it, in the very act of baptism, going into the water and then coming up, the gospel story is told. Paul speaks to this clearly in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. He said, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He answered, the, the, the thing that he's answering here in Romans chapter 6 is the objection that uh, shouldn't Christians just keep sinning? And Paul says, well, well, of course not. And then he throws out this verse. Don't you know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? He says that when we were baptized into Jesus, what this means is that we were baptized into his death. And he goes on in the next verse. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He, he says that we were baptized into his death so that we might be raised to walk in the newness of life. Do you see how the picture and sign of baptism contains the story of redemption? Jesus was killed for who? For you and for all those who would believe upon his name. He was buried in a tomb for three days. But then on that final Sunday morning, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. In like manner, the sign and symbol of baptism shows that the follower of Christ has died, but not physically, but died rather to sin. In the act and sign and symbol of baptism, it shows that we have been buried, but not in a tomb, but in the baptismal waters. And then coming up out of the waters, uh, it shows that, that we have been raised, not from physical life, uh, physical death to physical life, but from uh, spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. You see, baptism contains within it the story of redemption. Have you told that story with your life? Follower of Christ, so-called. Have you followed Jesus in the command to be baptized? Finally, point number three, the affirmation of faith. Baptism is the affirmation of faith into the new community. It's important to understand that baptism is an act that belongs to the church, not to individuals. It belongs to the new community that Jesus is building. Consider first that baptism is something someone else does to someone else. You don't baptize yourself. There are always two parties involved. And both parties say uh, something to each other and to the world. People tend to think that baptism is a symbol that people can simply choose to place upon themselves, like deciding to buy a shirt at the store and then wearing it in public, 
We think of baptism in that way. It doesn't so much matter who is doing the baptizing, like, all, like it doesn't matter much who the clerk at the checkout at the counter is. Any Christian can baptize anywhere because the focus is not on the baptizer, it's on the baptizee. You must decide to be baptized because you want to make a public statement of faith. I'm with Jesus. Think of uh, Philip in the Ethiopian church in Acts chapter 8. The eunuch wants to get baptized. He asks Philip to baptize him, which he does. It's all pretty simple, right? Isn't that enough, Pastor? In fact, the New Testament presents a fuller picture what we find in passage than what we find in passages like eight, uh, Acts 8. Uh, it's actually, uh, Acts 8 is the exception to the rule, not the rule itself. You have to start not in Acts, but in Matthew 16, where we began this morning, in verse 18, or in chapter eight, 16 and chapter 18, where Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom first to the apostles and then to local churches. The keys of the kingdom are for binding on earth what is bound in heaven. We read that this morning, loosing on earth what's loosed in heaven. This means that the apostles and gathered churches both have the authority to make a public declaration or verdict on Jesus' behalf. Think about what a judge does when he pounds his gravel. He doesn't write the law. He doesn't make the defendant innocent or guilty. Rather, he looks at the law. He looks at all the evidence before him. And then he declares a public and binding verdict. This judge-like authority to make official declarations on heaven's behalf is something that Jesus gives to gathered churches, not individual Christians. Listen to Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Jesus is not talking to small groups here. Uh, His presence is among them is not a mystical experience or an atmospheric condition. The context carefully read and understood will show that Jesus is saying that his heavenly authority belongs to places like this, the new community. A church is a regular gathering of at least two or three people who together testify to Christ's name. Christ is present with such gatherings to authorize them to speak in his name. So the question becomes, well, who has the authority to baptize? Can anyone baptize anyone as long as there's a little bit of water there? Well, if you're on the missions frontier where no other Christians exist, where no church is established, then you have no choice. Yes, you baptize there. Since no local church yet exists, you are the church in that place. Acts 8 provides a precedent for you if you're ever in this situation. At the same time, however, recall that Jesus explicitly ties his authoritative presence not to individuals, but to churches, to two or three people or two or three thousand or, or in our case, 30 or 40 gathered in his name. Ordinarily, there is a local churches who have the authority to baptize. Since baptism is performed by an individual, the church acts through representatives. But baptism is still the church's act. This is the affirmation of faith into the new community. This is why also, just as a, a side note, um, uh, we don't like the word excommunication. For a lot of Baptists, it kind of brings up uh, thoughts of Catholicity and the Catholic Church and seems like something they did in the Middle Ages and not really meant for today. But think about it. What did Paul do when there were members in church congregations that refused to obey the scriptures? What did he say to do? He said to have nothing to do with them, write them off. He says in one case that he hands them over to Satan. Why? Well, so that they might find repentance and be led to repentance. Right, this is what excommunication is. It's a church who has accepted into their membership. Uh, someone who uh, has walked away from the faith, no longer showing signs and symbols of the faith, and perhaps is actively uh, undermining the faith through their lifestyle or what they celebrate. And the church's only response in that is to say, we don't know if you're a Christian anymore. 
Now, it should be noted that only God knows who are truly his. You don't know, I don't know. Only God can see. Remember, it's an invisible work, something we can't see. But Jesus did say you would know them by their fruit. Jesus did say that, uh, that, repent, like, that we can bear fruit that, bears, uh, that uh, accords with repentance. And so in excommunication, like, so if baptism is the taking into the church to say, we believe this brother to be saved, which we're about to do. We believe and we, we've examined their life. We think that they're walking with Jesus. Can we know for sure? No, of course not. But over time, signs and symbols, the, the way they live their life, a, a, a healthy fruit will bear good, a healthy tree will bear good fruit. So if baptism is taking them in. Excommunication is saying, we're not so sure anymore if so-and-so believes the gospel. They're not living like they believe the gospel. Therefore, we don't know. So baptism is the in- entrance into the new community of faith. It's an it's, it's, it's affirmation. Again, how do you know? It goes back to the question, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you've been forgiven? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought in your own heart, especially after maybe some deep, dark sin that you've committed? Have you ever thought to yourself, man, maybe I'm not even a Christian? I think if we're honest, We've all been there. I'm a pastor. I've been there. What is it in that moment that then uh, reaffirms the faith that we uh, think we have? How many of you ever like made a public declaration of something only then to later retract it and say, I actually don't believe that anymore? Anybody ever lived through 2020? I mean, that was happening all over the place. Do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? Are we for social justice? Are we against social justice? Right? I mean, look back. How do we know that we weren't caught up in a rage of emotion and passion and declare that we loved Christ? The question is, well, are you walking with him now? Are you committed to a local body of believers? Are you plugged in now? Do you show signs that the Spirit lives within you now? And then, so what do you do when doubt comes? Perhaps you do have signs and symbols. Perhaps you are bearing fruit that accords with repentance. What do you do? How do you fight your own doubts? The answer is, The church fights it with you. The church rallies around you in your moments of sin. This is where confession is so important. In a new community where we confess our faults to one another and we remind ourselves of the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. This is how we keep the faith. This is how we act like men, stand firm in the faith, doing everything in love. So this is what baptism is. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's the story of redemption in a symbol and in an act, and it's an affirmation of faith into the new community. And I'm excited to be able to baptize some brothers today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what a, uh, what a weighty thing baptism is. It is a, our act of coming together, examining the scriptures, examining the fruit of our lives, examining whether or not we we truly believe the gospel, whether we truly believe Christ is Lord over everything or not. In a sense, baptism is the gravel coming down on all of us to say, yes, we believe. And Father Lord, then uh, communion then becomes the, the moment by moment, week by week, month by month, sustaining and reminding ourselves of that faith. So, Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We pray, Lord, that those who are far from you right now, you would draw to yourself. You would open their eyes, give them a new heart, which they can see and love and treasure Jesus above all things. And, Father, I pray you bless our baptism service. Um, May you be honored and magnified and be the main point of all of it. 
so you get glory all for yourself. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.